Tonight's episode of Legacy Battle is brought to you by Atlas Benefits. Atlas Benefits has solutions for your insurance needs. Atlas Benefits can help you obtain Medicare, health, or life insurance, and employee benefits. You can find them on the web at www.atlasbenefits.com. Or you can contact Rob Ducey or Roy Smith at 727-600-2892 and mention Legacy Battle Podcast. Atlas Benefits has all the solutions for your insurance needs. Enjoy the show. This is Legacy Battle coming at you on YouTube, Facebook, Spotify, iHeartRadio, everything you can think of. You want to sponsor this? Hit us up in the contacts, uh, in the comments section on the Facebook group or on YouTube. I am Michael Adams here, creator of Legacy Battle. Joining me tonight from the Gridiron Battle Zone, Brian King, Penn State Collegiate All-Star, Kevin Adams, Ball State Athlete, Paul Havocott. And we're also joined tonight by a four-time All-American from Trinity University, where she won the Collegiate Player of the Year Award in 1986. She has 191 WTA singles wins and 193 double wins with three career single titles. Um, she's 3-1 and one in career finals, only losing to Martina. No shame in that. Greatest player ever, probably. <laughs> and she's now the head tennis coach at Hollins University. And she's a Women's Collegiate Hall of Famer. So, ladies and gentlemen, Gretchen Rush. Thank you, Gretchen, for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you for inviting me, Michael. She has, like, the greatest background ever. That is live background, not this like us. This is real. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm in the, the, they call it the UP, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. It's one of the most beautiful places in America, for sure. Excellent. We're going to have a Q&A after the, tonight's debate with Gretchen about her career, of course. But tonight's debate, big topic, is the greatest tennis moment of all time. We've narrowed it down to what uh, we felt were our top four, and then we'll have four honorable mentions after that. Uh, we're going to start tonight with uh, Borg versus McEnroe at Wimbledon. Right, the 1980 Wimbledon final, uh, Bjorn Borg versus John McEnroe. So Borg, he was from Sweden, and he had an ice-cold persona. He was an emotionalist at times, just a, like a quiet assassin. He bested Rod Laver's uh, singles wins record. Uh, he won Wimbledon four times and was going for his fifth consecutive uh, Wimbledon win. Uh, he was loved by the ladies, good-looking guy, <laughs> and he was really popular. So Johnny Mack, he was – pretty much the polar opposite of Borg. He was uh, he's from New York. He was fiery. He was a loose cannon. He argued with the refs. He, he wore his emotions on his sleeve, standoffish. Um, he was a clear underdog going into this match, and many didn't care for his, his type of wild antics. So set one, Johnny Mack was nearly flawless, and he ended up uh, beating the champ six to one in the first set. So Borg was a little bit shell-shocked. Um, and Johnny Mack, he made him work in the second set as well. But Borg was able to win 7-5. Set three, Borg seemed to be back to into his groove, back to his, his championship pedigree, and he coasted to a 6-3 win. So it was kind of looking like, okay, maybe you know Johnny Mack sort of did his thing, but now Borg's in control. And then we had set four which is arguably the greatest single set in tennis history. Uh, Borg had championship point many times, but Johnny Mack just kept fighting back, kept fighting back, refused to quit, refused to give in. And there was a 34-point tiebreaker round. So it ended up 18 to 16 that Johnny Mack finally won. So then that pushed it to a set five. And after falling down uh, 40 to 15, Borg won 19 straight points. 
Johnny Mac, he battled back to force uh, force extra games, but Borg ultimately won eight to six in set five, taking the match. Uh, the match ended up lasting three hours and 53 minutes, so almost four hours. And it was clearly just one for the ages. Um, there was sort of a lot of folklore about this match because uh, Borg himself admitted years later that people came up to him and said, you know, they couldn't remember if he even won the match or lost the match because people remember that great fourth set and how Johnny Mac was able to pull off the, the win in, in that thicker set. But people forget that Borg was actually the one that, that won the match and he got his he got his five straight uh, Wimbledon wins. This was a great rivalry, so much so that we, we featured it in a, in a prior show. Uh, check it out in the archives. Jonathan Stark was on that, that show. Um, Gretchen, this match... It meant so much to tennis. Uh, it was like a passing of the torch almost for the men's. You know, so I'm sure you, you saw it or you at least seen it after sure. the fact. I know yeah. it's before your time, but well, um, you know, what I'm were your thoughts on sure. it? Sure. Actually, did you say it was 1980 or 1982? 1980, yeah. 80. Well, I got to play uh, Junior Wimbledon. I thought it was 1982 when uh, – I thought it was Borg and McEnroe were playing. We were playing in the junior final out on the outside court. And then I know it was McEnroe and they were playing at the same time and the crowd was roaring and it, they went and played in forever and ever and ever. And uh, I, I know after one of those matches, Borg retired after that. That's so right. That yeah, was, it was after this match. Yeah. Yeah. There was, there was he retired after this one. There. Yeah. So anyway, it's uh Borg, as you said, Borg was the icon of that era, and it really was a passing of the torch. Uh, you know, as we as we say, we thought McEnroe won that match. I would have, if you asked me to bet, I would have said McEnroe won that match. But uh, we remember that set and just the the clash of the the styles. You know, Borg was the baseliner, and McEnroe was just coming up to the net and emotional and you know swearing and yelling at the umpires and Borg was just stoic you know a stoic Swede so it was it was a fantastic uh, rivalry as you said and and I do think it was sort of the modern era of tennis that McEnroe brought in and uh, just was you know exciting to be a part of that I was learning to play tennis in the 70s and uh, you know in America that was you know we went all the way down in Pittsburgh all the courts were full people were playing tennis we used to go down to the Mount Lebanon trestle courts and wait for an hour or two to get a court that's how many people were playing tennis in America at that point so you know, I think Jimmy Connors and John McEnroe you know they came in after Stan Smith and Arthur Ashe and just had this brash you know pedal to the metal uh, mentality about tennis and I think it just captured the attention of the American public so Kevin, you uh, you're known for wearing your emotions on your sleeve out there when playing <laughs> sports. You get a little animated and 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 throw some language out there. What are your thoughts on uh, on McEnroe and and how he how he would act a lot out there? You think that was acceptable because he's just throwing it all out there, or, or should he calm his jets a little bit? Well, I think that's what kind of actually helped him get noticed. You know, you remember that fiery character. You know, he stands out. Um, he was a little bit younger though, <clears throat> if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so I think he had some maturing to do and, um, you know, it shows the fire in the, the drive that he had. He wanted to win. He wanted to perform well in every match that he played. Um, he was a great tennis player. I know, you know, <clears throat> these guys were friends with each other. I think one of them appeared in their wedding or something. Didn't one of them attend like <laughs> a best man or a groomsman in their wedding. Um, so they were friends off the court. And so even, you know, when he would have that attitude on the court, it wasn't, you know, necessarily towards uh, Borg. But, um, no, I mean, you get you get your emotions get involved. You, you want to win. You do everything that you can to win. If a call doesn't go your way and it should have went your way, of course you're going to you're gonna say something that's unfavorable. I mean, it's not a good role model, but, you know, it, it happens, especially, <laughs> especially in other physical contact sports. I couldn't, I couldn't imagine him in hockey or football, the, yeah. the stuff that he would probably be saying. Oh, my goodness. But he is a great tennis player regardless, so. Whether he said something or he didn't say anything, he was a great player. But to your point, Kevin, I, I think part of it is also the, the time period that it happened. I mean, it, nowadays we see more players like McEnroe, you know, in, in all sports. But back in, you know, 40 years ago, that was sort of a more of a taboo kind of thing, you know, that that, that was like on the edge of fast sportsmanship. And so that's, that's kind of what made it a little bit more memorable, maybe. Yeah. 
All right, let's move it, on. It was definitely oh, a bad sports. It was definitely bad sportsmanship. And at Wimbledon <laughs> at that point, you, you know, the, the balls were white. The, the You had to wear white clothes. And it was, you know, stiff upper lip. You know, there was no, there was nothing like John McEnroe. I don't think there's, there has ever been anybody like him. He just played with so much passion. And, uh, you know, he, he really was uncontrollable. So, but I think that's what, that's what turned people on to tennis. It was, it was so authentic and he was real. And, uh, you know, that's kind of a nice change from watching people just walk back and forth and, and hit tennis balls. You know, he was, it's like a volcano. You didn't know if he was going to erupt and it's like watching a hockey game and a fight breaks out. Right. You know, people, people love that. And, you know, it's just the passion of the game. So he really, he really did that. Still does right. it. I think he got. I think he got defaulted in a senior match the other day. So, <laughs> like, nice. Like 60, 65, 70 years old, and he's still getting in trouble. So, <laughs> all right, let's move on to the battle of the sexes. Oh, my favorite, the mother of modern sports, Billie Jean King. If Gretchen thinks that McEnroe's behavior was a little bit crazy, what about Bobby Riggs? <laughs> Uh, Billie Jean King, she started actually as a softball player. I thought that was interesting because her parents ended up encouraging her to play tennis uh, for the reason of it was more ladylike. And if that's not a perfect table <laughs> setting to something like this, uh, on September, this, I mean, this has got to be one of the greatest sports stories ever. On September 20th, 1973, in a highly publicized battle, the sexist tennis match, Billie Jean King was 29 at the time. Um, she's born uh, November 22nd, 1943, Long Beach out of California. She beats Bobby Riggs, who was 55 at the time, former number one ranked men's tennis player. He was born 225, 1918, out of Lincoln Heights, Louisiana. And the thing about this guy was he's a self-proclaimed male chauvinist. It boasted all over the place. Anybody who would interview him, anybody who listened, that women were inferior. They couldn't handle the pressure of the game. <laughs> And that even at that age, he could beat any female player. Uh, this, I don't know how you couldn't like this story. So later on, they make a movie about this. I think, if I'm not mistaken, it was about three, four years ago with Steve Carell. Uh, but uh, at the time that this happened in real time, it was a huge media event. Over 30,000 spectators at the Houston Astrodome and about another 50 million on TV. Uh, Billie Jean King made a Cleopatra-style entrance on a golden uh, litter carried by men dressed as ancient slaves. I think Mike's got a poster of this in his bedroom over his bed. But while Riggs <laughs> arrived in a rickshaw, he was pulled by female models. And I think that's the one Kevin's got, actually. So legendary sportscaster Howard Cassell called the match. And then it goes like this. King beats Riggs 6-4, 6-3, and 6-3. And I think the biggest takeaway from this is it uh, not only helped legitimize women's professional tennis and female athletes, but it was seen as a victory in, like, the women's rights movement in general. I think she forced the conversation to happen before maybe America was even ready to have a conversation like this. Her career, it wasn't a fluke either. I mean, she compiles over 20 Wimbledon victories before she's done uh, in singles, doubles, and mixed doubles. In 1972, she became the first women, woman to be chosen for Sports Illustrated Spokesperson of the Year. And in 73, she became the first president of the Women's Tennis Association. And then I think one of the most important things, too, that we're still talking about today is in 1971, she became the first female athlete to earn more than $100,000 in prize money in a single season. However, that's like there was, there was part of significant pay disparities that were existing. And so she fought for that and she lobbied for change. And so in 1973, the U.S. Open became the first major tennis tournament to hand out the same uh, prize money, whether you're male or female. So that you're stealing is my, stealing my info, Paul. I got the WTT. Just saying. <laughs> hey, man, I'm passionate about Billie Jean King, and that's the winner. <laughs> so, so Gretchen, uh, as a young woman growing up, I'm sure you, you saw what was going on with this. What were your thoughts as, as a young woman in, in the tennis field seeing? Well, tell me, tell me again the date. Cause my, I was, I was born in 64. Was it 71? 73 is when the, the match. 73. She so, started, I think, in what, 63, but, um, yeah. in yeah. 73 she is when she. When the match was. 
So yeah, I was. I remember watching the match. I was nine, but I did not play tennis. I hadn't even started playing tennis. But I remember, you know, those are the TVs were black and white, and they were little. And I remember, you know, going up and watching it, and um, just because I love sports, and you know, obviously growing up in Pittsburgh, it's impossible not to love sports and the Steelers and watch, you know, the Sunday wide world of sports. So it was just, it was definitely a game changer. And then to be in tennis and to, you know, I've gotten to play against Billie Jean King. I've played world team tennis. You know, I've, I've been around her several, several times. I've gotten to give speeches with her, you know, to, for me, uh, in women's tennis and being a women athlete, it's a complete game changer. It's a culture changer. Um, just as far as not just professional sports, but Title IX and, you know, now being a college coach and, uh, you know, none of that would have been possible without uh, that match. And I do, I do agree. It was a little bit before she was before her time. And this, in the seventies, women weren't able to have credit cards. They weren't able to have mortgages. Very few women drove, very few, very few women had um, jobs outside the home. It was, you know, less than 50% at that point. So it was totally uh, a culture shock in this idea of women's lib and Bobby being a, a, a male chauvinist pig. I just think it was, it was just made for TV. He was just larger than life, just like John McEnroe. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful for Billy to have the courage to play him because he, you know, he was a very, very good tennis player. He had won Wimbledon and all three events, singles, doubles, and mixed doubles. And uh, she, she had the courage to do it. And our, I don't think our world would be the same. So without that match, without her. And Paul, you mentioned the movie. Steve Carell did a great job playing Bobby Riggs. I thought I, I was very impressed with that. But uh, Brian, I want to ask you about Bobby Riggs here. So there's two books out there about Bobby Riggs and – I, yeah, I don't agree with anything he said. Let me throw that out there. But <laughs> there, there is a side of the story, if you read these books about him, that says this was a show. This was a way for him to make money, him to stay popular, him to play the wrestling heel, basically. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Right. So what are your thoughts about that? I, yeah, I, I think he definitely played it up. Um, you know, he kind of – played the villain, played the heel, like you said, uh, you know, to, to make it worse. I mean, maybe there was some of, you know, maybe some of that was rooted in how he really felt, but I don't think it was really to that kind of extreme. But, um, but yeah, when, when that battle of the sexist thing happened, uh, you, you really had to have, you had to have him, you know, be that villain in order to, to sort of push this, this new idea that would, that was coming along about, you know, women being able to do anything that, that, that men could do. And Gretchen, after the, the the massacre match against Margaret Court, I mean, how important was it for Billy to get the win? Oh, it was, and she said, there's a very, very tiny book that I highly recommend for tennis players or young women or just sports fanatics. It's called Pressures of Privilege, and it's basically Billy takes her life lessons, and it, it goes through the history of the match. And, uh, you know, she thought long and hard about it. And I think in, in the movie, you know, <laughs> it has Bobby Rings, like, showing up at her hotel room, knocking the door, play me, play me, or calling her in the middle of the night, you got to play me. You know, she thought about it long and hard because she knew if she lost, it would set women back. So um, I just, I think, again, she just took it on. She took that pressure and... Um, and it was a game changer for women, and it's certainly a game changer for women's tennis. But uh, one of the things she says in that book that I wanted to to bring up, I know there's lots of theories that, you know, Bobby threw the match or he, you know, he was betting against himself or he was betting, he bo- he played both, he bet both ways. But in the match uh, that Billie Jean said when they shook hands, Bobby said, I underestimated you. And I think that to me, that tells me he thought he was going to win the whole time. He just, he just in his mind, his his confidence and his, uh, you know, he just, whether he believed all of his show or not, I don't know, but he he just didn't think he would lose to Billy. <laughs> so, I mean, him saying that to her face in front of all those people, you know, I underestimated you. And I think he did. Her, her resolve and she trained and 
he was out there promoting and promoting. And I think he lost sight of the, that it was actually a match. It wasn't just a show. So. All right, let's go back to Wimbledon. This time Federer versus Nadal. 2008. Um, this is this, this rivalry here basically I think helped keep tennis at its peak. Um, it, it's the new Borg and McEnroe uh, type rivalry. You know, at the time, Federer was top-ranked uh, seat against Nadal, who was second-ranked. Um, this match at the time ended up being the longest match in finals history uh, at Wimbledon. It was four hours and 48 minutes. Um, you know, when it, when it ended, Nadal, you know, came out on top, defeated Federer, 6-4, uh, 6-4. Uh, then Federer, uh, Federer went 7-6, uh, 7-6, and then it ended 9-7 in, in Nadal's favor. But this is one of the greatest tennis matches ever. Uh, this rivalry is one of the greatest rivalries in the history of tennis. These two players had won 14 of the last 16 Grand Slam titles at that time. This was the third consecutive year for these two to face off in the finals of Wimbledon. Federer had won the previous two matchups, um, and he had won the last five years going into this wow. match. Nadal had just won the French Open, and it's very rare that someone wins the French Open and the Wimbledon back-to-back because they're only about a month apart, and they're two different type of surfaces, so it's hard to make that transition so quickly. Um, so to win the French Open in the same re year, like I said, it's very rare, and for Nadal to, to do that, that's actually a pretty, pretty good achievement. So this match was really hyped. It actually got delayed to start. It actually started 30 minutes late because um, uh, there was some rain going on and actually kept going on throughout the match. There was a couple of delays. Uh, Nadal had won the first two sets. And it almost looked like he was going to shut out Federer in this match. Um, and then a rain delay happened in the third set. Federer was winning uh, that set. Uh, he actually ended up winning the next two to send it into the tiebreaker. Now, the final tiebreaker, this is the greatest tiebreaker in the history of tennis. Nadal <laughs> went up 5-2. to two. Um, he could have won on either of his next two serves, uh, but he double faulted and he backhanded one into the net. Uh, uh, Federer ended up battling back, made it 7-7. Seven, seven. Uh, Nadal had hit a forehand down the line past Roger, um, setting up another championship point. Um, Federer responded with a backhander down the line. Two of the greatest shots of the tournament <laughs> happened in this tiebreaker. Um, another rain delay would happen. Uh, when they came back, it was actually starting to get dark. It was actually possibly going to move the match uh, to the next day. Um, but uh, when they came back, Federer was two points away from claiming his sixth straight victory. Nadal held the serve, though, um, and ended up serving out the match, ended up winning that tiebreaker 9-7. to This was the first Wimbledon um, victory for him uh, in fifth Grand Slam singles title uh, for Nadal. Uh, this was the longest match, like I had said, for a Wimbledon final at the time. Federer was tied with Borg for five consecutive titles going into this match. He actually would have passed him and took the, that title, that record, uh, as his own. Uh, this ended uh, Federer's 41-match win streak at Wimbledon. Uh, that's insane. <laughs> uh, this uh, made Nadal one of only three men to win the French Open and Wimbledon in the same year. Uh, two months later, Nadal ended up overtaking Federer uh, in the rankings, uh, which Federer had actually held the number one ranking for 237 consecutive weeks um, up to that point. So this match had two of the greatest players, one of the greatest rivalries, one of the greatest matches in Wimbledon history. This has got to be one of the best moments in tennis history. So Gretchen, I understand you were there. So I don't know. Do you, I don't know if I was there. Oh, you don't? <laughs> well, what, what are you thinking about that match? Like, I mean – just well, back it's, it's and funny. I, I love you guys. Uh, first of all, I love your accent when you say tournament because I say that occasionally and, you know, people are from Pittsburgh or Baltimore when they say it like that. But, uh, you know, and this is this is why I, I'm going to have to if, I don't know if I get to vote or we, we arm wrestle for who gets the who gets the greatest title here. But we'll, we'll vote, you know, we'll, we vote. OK. Um, you know, I, I remember exactly where I was when I was watching the Billie Jean King match. And, and when was, we were talking earlier. Um, one of the perks of getting to play in senior Wimbledon is you get to go, you're, you're still there at the end of the tournament and you get in a lottery. And I got to, I got to go watch some of these matches, but I can't remember. 
if I saw that match, I, and uh, as he was talking about the rain delays, I, it's, you know, it came back to me. But, I mean, to think that they played for five hours, that's like an Iron Man, you know. And it's, you know, I've heard they, they run 20, 30 miles in a match, you know, and then have to do it, you know, two days. You know, they have a day off between the semis, but to do it back to back, and like you're saying, to, to come back after the French Open, it's just, just the physical demands are just incredible the way these guys play but I do remember those shots that he was talking about in the tiebreaker they're just phenomenal and the what well, I was talking to one of my tennis friends about the French Open just finished up this weekend and it's like watching Nintendo it's like it's not even real people doing the things that these guys can do now so um you know I just and the one thing I really enjoy about getting to watch them in, in person and and on tv is just uh, just how classy they are and when they play they have so much respect for each other and so much respect for the game like talk about the opposite of McEnroe you know they will occasionally scream in passion I think that's why Nadal is so uh, revered is he plays with so much passion I think people enjoy that but it's never directed at anyone else you know it's never directed at his opponent or a linesman or someone in the crowd that's making noise that would drive McEnroe crazy you know he's just within himself just the passion and I think he's you know just so beloved for for his passion and that uh that way he plays the game and Federer on the other hand just just a little bit more Borg-like you know just stoic and and reserved and within himself but just plays with so much beauty I think it really is a classic classic rivalry and and just just beloved by fans I don't think you know anybody wanted to see anyone lose that match Paul you we talked about Borg McEnroe being a passing of the torch was this a passing of the torch as well to Nadal or did, has Federer just hung on so long that torch is still his I mean I know Djokovic is in there now as well but um you know what are your thoughts about that I think it's a topic that fans of each could argue on their on each's behalf I remember watching that in real time on TV I only got halfway like I started halfway through and I saw the tiebreaker and it was just one of those things where you knew that you were watching something very special and then when I, I just cracked up the rain delays the rain in general the, the drama of it and you're right Roger is kind of stuck around I, I think somebody it was Gretchen mentioned like uh, the total antithesis of the prior match that Brian argued because these two are so polished and I think that they're both very, very equal and very, very well representative of tennis. I, I agree. It's been going on for, man, it feels like 15 years, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> we kind of thought back then that Roger, you know, that was 08 and Ryan, we thought Roger might hang it up. And he's still dabbling in it. I mean, he's isn't he in his forties? I think he's my age. Isn't he forty three, forty two? Yeah, yeah, he's I, very he's very particular about when he plays. Yeah. And he plays the matches he thinks he can win, and the and the surfaces. And um, but back to your question, Michael. I I don't think there really is a been a passing of the torch. I think maybe when Federer beat Sampras, you know, at the Wimbledon, that Wimbledon, that was a really long match. Um, but that was a passing of the torch to Federer. But this, the Federer, Djokovic, Nadal, those three, they've just been trading back and forth for the last 15, 20 years. They're just incredible. The level that they've brought each other to, it's incredible. Let's move on to our final one of the night before we get to our honorable mentions. And that is going to be Billie Jean King starting the WTT. So for those of you that don't know, it's uh, World Team Tennis. And, and our, our very own Gretchen has, Rush has played in this league, so yeah. she'll have something to say about it. But uh, so as Paul mentioned a little bit earlier, Billie Jean, she campaigned for years for equal pay for, for women. She wanted them to get the same as the men. So her and her husband, Larry King, not the CNN Larry King, different Larry King, mm -hmm. um, they came up with the idea basically of a, a nine-player nine women's group. Um, and, and then they also – had uh, people like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar were part of this that brought in nine men to come play. And what it was is you got males and females playing together on the same team against another male and female. So 
this was all in a way to make her point of getting that equal pay. I know Paul had mentioned the, the U.S. Open thing. Um, I was going to bring that up, too, that, you know, she said she wasn't going to play after she won the U.S. Open the, next, the following year if they weren't going to give equal pay. So, but, um, so like I said, I mean, the, the WTTV is based on gender equality. It's been going on for 45 years now. That, that's a pretty long time. Billy uh, and her husband then, um, they use their savings to get that first event to happen, so their, their own money. And it's now recognized as the leader in team tennis competition. So if you've ever seen um, the matches, it's basically, you know, Billie Jean says it's a philosophy of her life in action. Men and women competing together on a team of both genders, making equal contributions to the result. So this is kind of her way of sticking it to the, to the WTA, taking some of the money away. I know they had like Winston cigarettes sponsoring them. Uh, you know, smoking in the 70s was a lot different than what smoking is today. So, but you know, she's considered the queen of women's tennis. Um, so you got to kind of look at it too, though, from this standpoint. 45 years later, where are we at now? I mean, I've done some research and women in the top 100 rankings are only getting 80 cents on the dollar compared to men of the same rank in the top 100. Um, and that's basically $120,000 difference if you look at it. Um, and then some tournaments, it's worse. It's only 63 cents on the dollar, like the Western and Southern Opens. So if you go back to 2016, Federer got $731,000 for winning that tournament, defending his championship. Serena, defending her championship, only got 495000 So we still today don't have the, the equal pay, which was basically the intent. It's gotten a lot better. still has a ways to go, especially if you look at the money brought in, at least in tennis. Women's tennis brings in as much money as men's tennis for the most part. Uh, it's not like the big separation you see in the WNBA or something like that or the LPGA and the PGA, the money differences. Um, so they should receive equal pay. She fought for it. This was, this was her, her wish, her, her, her lifelong goal, and she's still fighting today for it. I, she, we mentioned earlier she's in her 70s. Um, so, you know, creating this league was a big step forward to getting, getting that equality gap closer so Gretchen you, you played in the league tell tell us about it and, and what did it mean to you to, to play in that well it's so it's such a loaded uh, you know when you say the word Billie Jean King it's uh, you know it, it brings up a lot of memories and one thing that that came to mind was that uh, you know we had in Pittsburgh we had the Pittsburgh triangles I don't know if you guys you guys are too young to know about that but that was in the 70s and we had a franchise in Pittsburgh Peggy Michael and Yvonne Gulagong, Vetus Garolitis, you know, these were my heroes. And Billy brought that level of tennis to Pittsburgh for us to watch. And that was very instrumental in me, um, you know, seeing there's a bigger world outside of uh, Pittsburgh that tennis can take you all over the world. And I was blessed to be able to, to see the world through, through a game. Um, but my dad actually... Uh, had lassoed a, uh, a program from the Billie Jean versus Bobby Riggs match. And he knew all the cops down at the Civic Arena from uh, going to watch hockey games. And he got Billy's autograph for me on a, on a program from the match. And uh, just to be able as a young tennis player to see Billie Jean King play tennis. And that's what she did. She took tennis, which had sort of been this elite you know, at the Forest Hills Country Club and all these fancy places where you had to wear white into arenas where men and women were playing together. I mean, it was just like, again, so far be ahead of her time. Uh, one of the things that Billy has talked about, which she hasn't seen come into fruition, which I wish she would, would be able to do, was probably about 20 years ago, I heard her talking about how she wanted collegiate tennis to have the world team tennis format where men and women were playing together. And uh, I think that was sort of her vision all along, you know, to, to have men and women be equal. You know, she, I don't think she was ever a women's liver per se, but that men and women are 
of equal value. You know, that's how she was brought up and that's just how she saw the world. And I think that was her vision of world team tennis. And I would just love to see it happen, you know, as she's still, still with us that she could make uh, that happen in, in collegiate tennis. I just think it would be incredible to have men and women competing for our colleges and, uh, it would be an exciting uh, spectator event, and uh, I think the matches would be really, really popular and and maybe a little resurgence of tennis back to this, those times in the 70s. So we'll see if she can pull pull that rabbit out of her hat before <laughs> she, she passes on. Brian, we've seen women now starting to integrate into the coaching of men's sports, and we've also seen... Annika Storenstam play against men in the PGA. She, she's played in one, maybe two tournaments uh, when she was in her peak. Are we now to the point where maybe, I know Serena's a little older, but somebody of that caliber could probably go in there and take out some men in a tournament? <laughs> um, I mean, I, I think it's possible. I mean, I don't know because of the women's, you know, side is already so established. I don't know if they'd have a whole lot of desire to go into the into the men's section, but I think I think that they could. I mean, I think a, a peak Serena could do some serious damage in the men's <laughs> side for sure. <laughs> she she did win our greatest women's tennis player debate, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> highly possible. All right, let's uh, let's just move on to our honorable mentions, guys. Try and keep it at one minute. Uh, we'll start out with yours, Paul. Okay, I got Arthur Ashe. You're talking basically about the Jackie Robinson of tennis. He started playing tennis early on because his dad got stationed, uh, took a post in Brookfield in 47, and I had tennis courts on there. So he, he played, he became really well, and you're you're talking about somebody who's got a lot of highlights here for African Americans. Three Grand Slam wins, 18 doubles titles, two Grand Slam doubles titles. He was the first black player selected to the United States Davis Cup team and had wins in the Davis Cup in 63, 68, 69, and 70. He was the only black man ever to win the singles title at Wimbledon, the U.S. Open, and the Australian Open. He did a lot of good in retirement as well. He retired in 80. He was elected in the Hall of Fame in 85, but in his retirement in 80, he wrote for Time Magazine, the Washington Post, and commented for ABC Sports and HBO uh, actually did it from 80 until a few months before he died, and he founded the National Junior Tennis League and served as captain of the U.S. Davis Cup team from 81 to 85. Just a real landmark type of athlete that kind of paved the way for, for other African-Americans in the future. Kevin? Yeah, 2013 Wimbledon, uh, Andy Murray's victory over his rival Djokovic. Another Wimbledon final with two top-ranked players at the time. Um, you know, this was their, their fourth time, uh, in a Grand Slam final against each other. Match was just over three hours. Andy Murray swept them, beat them three straight sets, uh, defeating the number one ranked Djokovic. Um, Murray became the first British man since 1936, uh, to win the Wimbledon, uh, title and the first Scottish man since 1896 to win the title. Uh, this match peaked at seven over 17 million viewers in the United Kingdom. Um, this was one of the greatest drought-ending wins in sports history. Uh, the country <laughs> rallied behind it. Uh, one of the BBC reporters, sports reporters, said this was the holy grail of British sport. Um, you know, it dominated pretty much all the British newspapers. It was on the front page of Serbia's two biggest uh, newspapers, dominated the sports section of the New York Times, and it dominated Australia's Sydney Morning Herald. Um, Definitely deserves an honorable mention. Broke that drought, one of the longest droughts in sports history. It was good times for the United Kingdom. Shut down all of England for that one. It was so big. Yep. <laughs> Brian, go ahead. Okay, uh, 1988 Wimbledon uh, finals, Navratilova versus Graf. Um, Navratilova was like, she was the established star, considered by many to be the best women's player ever. Steffi Graf was 12 years younger than Martina. She was a rising star, but she had yet to have beaten Martina in a major. Um, and Martina had beaten her rather easily in the 87 Wimbledon and the 87 U.S. Open, both two sets. But after dropping the first set, 7-5, uh, Steffi Graf roared back, winning 6-2 and then 6-1, kind of indicating a changing of the guard or a, a shift in the balance of power uh, for women's tennis. Huge match, definitely passing the torch like we've been talking about a couple others tonight. 
And for our final one, uh, that's me. I'm representing Andre Agassi, his retirement speech. Uh, I don't think there's anybody, at least especially at that time, that transcended the sport more than Andre Agassi. Um, he took it mainstream. You know, now it's Serena has done that. But uh, Agassi was really the first to do it. Um, I'm just going to read his speech. It's really short, but it's that good. He's getting a standing ovation after losing in the third round. He's crying the whole time during this. And he says, the scoreboard said I lost today, but what it doesn't say is what I found. Over the last 21 years, I found loyalty. You pulled for me on the court and also in life. If you know about his life, read his book, crazy stuff. I found inspiration. You willed, to, willed me to exceed even in my lowest moments, and I found generosity. You have given me your shoulders to stand on to reach for my dreams, dreams I could never reach without you. Over the last 21 years, I have found you, and I will take that memory with me the rest of my life. Just some beautiful words. Great tennis player. My favorite player of all time. So let's move on to our vote. Paul, you're in my upper corner of the four. Who are you taking? Can't vote for your own, guys. I know. I can't vote for my own, so I'm going to trick you, and I'm going to vote for yours because yours is mine. Billie Jean King, baby, forever. <laughs> that WTT <laughs> one. All right. Brian. Um, I'm going to go for the Battle of the Sexes just because of what it meant, whether staged or not. Oh, man. I mean, it, it just put uh, put the women's tennis and even women's athletes sort of on the map, so gained a lot of momentum from that. Kevin? I got to go with uh, Borg and McEnroe. I love the rivalry stories. Does a lot for sports. I'm also going to go with the Battle of Sexes. Um, I know we weren't alive at that time, but I I, I know how big it was. I, I really do. And I, I've I've seen the movie. I've read the books. Incredible moment in tennis history. And to have a woman up against the male at that time period, that that is society changing, in my opinion. Gretchen, your vote. Well, I, I have to go with Billie Jean King and uh, Bobby Riggs just because it changed my life. And I don't, I, I, you know, I think the tennis matches run together and, uh, you know, that, but that one will never, it'll never die. And it, I, I just give a plug for the um, PBS has a couple uh, stories about Billie Jean King and one I think is called makers and it tells the story of the match and uh it's a really a uh, beautiful rendition of 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 the the social history behind the match and i think it's really valuable did you think the movie was pretty accurate in how it portrayed i, did, I, I didn't love the movie yeah. i didn't love the movie i've read a lot of books about the match and you know i've kind of lived it and you know i thought there was you know, it, it kind of went into its political stuff and the romance stuff. I just, you know, I wanted yeah. it to be about tennis. It, it, yeah. And, of course, you know, as a tennis geek, you know, the, the girls that played Billy, you know, she had, like, a modern forehand and had all this topspin. Like, there was just some things that irritated me. But, you know, I love that they told the story about tennis and Billy. And, and uh, you know, there's those characters. I don't know if you guys know this, but those nine women that started uh, – Virginia Slim's tour are being uh, inducted into the Hall of Fame this summer. So, you know, they've been honored through on the Tennis Channel, et cetera. So uh, they're being lifted up. And, you know, they they all took a lot of chances in, in life and, you know, traveling around the world in that in that in the 70s was for a woman was very unheard of, really. So they used to go, you know, they'd go to the grocery store and give out tickets. And, you know, they really had to sell sell it that it was worth watching that their matches were worth watching so you know they like like Andre said we stand on their shoulders and uh, you know I wouldn't whenever I see Billy or Val Ziegenfuss or Kerry Millville or those any of those nine I thank them for my life because I've been able to have a life in sports and um, just growing up in Pittsburgh and you know loving the Steelers and the Penguins and the Pirates and you know to play the sport I love my whole life is uh, you know it's a gift that I, I wouldn't have had without Billy and Bobby and Bobby too Bobby you know he was the biggest big player in that as well so so a win for the battle of sexes let's move into our Q&A um, Brian go ahead okay so I understand that now you're into uh, tennis coaching so 
What do you yes. find? What do you find most challenging, and what do you find most <laughs> rewarding about coaching tennis? Well, I'd say most challenging is living up to my coaches that I've had. I was just in Pittsburgh last week to visit my mom and family, and I got to go see my high school tennis coach, Mr. Stahl from Mount Lebanon High School. And I just think, you know, the teachers and coaches just have changed my life. And and I know that. And, uh, you know, the kids are different today, just like the Rolling Stones said, right? They've got this this apparatus in their hand that knows more than I do it knows work you know it doesn't make you turns and it doesn't you know it knows everything and you can see every tennis stroke that's ever been hit right on 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 YouTube but uh, I think just living up to the coaches I've had you know I have a strong desire to give back to the sport and to young people and right now I'm at a women's college so you know the emphasis is on leadership for young women which I totally believe in so I think it's just, you know, reaching these, the, this younger generation, you know, they have so much information at their fingertips and, uh, you know, being relevant to their lives. I think that's my biggest challenge. Like I used to just, you know, go take tennis lessons and just was all ears. And I thought I knew nothing. Right. And, and the, the students today, they know a lot, you know, <laughs> so I said, that's my hardest thing. Uh, what I love most about it is just being in, around the sport and just knowing that, tennis can uh, can change people's lives just the the confidence it gives you and the uh you know you learn you can never you never you never give up never give up in life because you know tennis we don't have a we don't have a timer like you were talking about those long long matches you know they should have given up they were match point against and you know they came back and won and and we can do that you know just despite the adversity that we're all going to have in life you know you just you know bear down and and you gather yourself and you go back out there. So um, those, are, those are the kind of lessons I would like to pass on. And I think it's my, you know, my, it's my honor and it's my, you know, privilege or my responsibility to pass those lessons on. Whether the kids want to hear them or I can say them in a way they want to hear it, that's my challenge. <laughs> so. Oh, go ahead. Okay, as you can tell, I'm all in on Billie Jean King, so I'm going to ask you, if you could Billie Jean King a man, I'm not asking you to declare victory or guarantee one, but what man would you have picked to play? Was there somebody out there you thought you'd match up well against, or, or you're a fan of somebody? Oh, if I had to play against a man to yeah. my brother, it would absolutely be my brother. I right. almost beat him once. He was playing tennis. He played talk, hockey and tennis at Penn State, and I was probably one of the top five junior women tennis players in America and like I was probably 18 he was probably 21 and I ne I've never beaten my brother in anything that I, I recall ever <laughs> and we were playing at the bubbles in Mount Lebanon and he came home from college and you know it was like three two or four three for him and but I was close to him and he started getting mad and hitting the ball against the bubble and uh, that was the last time we ever played so if I could ever play a match for, I think Billy and Bobby played for $100,000 or something, I'd play my brother. And I bet you he'd beat me. <laughs> Kevin. It's not, he's not famous, but it would be fun in our family. Yeah. So I was looking at uh, your, your titles that you played in, and it seems like you were most successful on hard courts. Um, yes, and in, far flung, and in far-flung places that no one else would go to. That's where I usually did well, so... <laughs> Was there, uh, like was Schenect there a Schenectady, New York, and you know, those kind of places? Was there, was there a type of court that you preferred, and, and like, what's the difference? I, lo I love playing Wimbledon. You know, I tell whenever I get to talk to young people, you know, you know, all these commencement speeches and stuff, they they always say to dream big, you'll never, you'll never, uh, you know, you have to dream bigger than you could possibly think. And like to think, you know, I grew up in Pittsburgh, just like you guys, and but to think that I played in 20 Wimbledons, you know, I, I kind of put on my dream list. I wanted to play pro tennis, right? That's all my, my, my brain could uh, comprehend. You know, we had the Virginia Slims of Pittsburgh come to Monroeville and I got to play in the qualifyings or something. And you know, I just wanted to play. I just wanted to go play, you know, and, but to get to go to Wimbledon 20 times and, you know, watch those famous matches play, you know, I got to play on center court against Martina Navratilova, which, you know, sounds really great, but you actually don't want to play Martina on center court. It's not that fun. So, 
Um, but you know, to all the things I was able to do, uh, it's just, it's, it's miraculous. It's like reading someone else's book. So I don't know if I answered your question, but you're good. <laughs> it's just, it's incredible, right. To, to play your sport and, and to have, and to have your, you know, to have your day, uh, to play against people in the world was just, it's like a crazy. This, I, I have a, a great example. I don't know if this is even close to the question you asked, but uh, do you guys remember who Dave Dravecki was? He was a pitcher for the San Francisco uh, Giants yes. and he had bone cancer and he came back, he came all the way back and he threw the pitch and his his like shoulder shattered on TV. Do you guys remember that? You were probably yes. four years old. No, 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 yeah. You had yeah. to get his arm amputated, I believe, right? Yeah. Right, right. Mm -hmm. he's, a, he's an incredible guy. He was, he was an incredible guy. And, and anyway, I tell the story because uh, he says, the way he describes his pro career, it's like they filled up San Francisco Stadium with every little kid that played baseball. And they called one name and they said, Dave Dravecki, come down and play. You know, you come down and pitch for the for the San Francisco Giants, and I feel like it's exactly the same. Like they filled up Three River Stadium or or the U.S. Open Stadium, and everyone, every little girl's dressed up, every little girl that plays tennis, and they called one name to come down and play, and they called my name, and I I feel exactly like that. I you know, there's so many people that practice harder, or had more talents, or had more lessons, but you know, I just I was blessed to get the chance, so I'm very grateful for it. What was the question? <laughs> It was, uh, uh, we'll move on to the next one. Don't yeah, worry about good. it. Okay, good. We'll edit so, that out. I don't know. That was, that was, no, that was good. I'm watching you, the sunset, too. You guys got to see this. I don't know if you can see it. but I can see it. It's beautiful. It's, yeah. it's unbelievable. Beautiful. I don't know if you can see it. It's like orange and purple. So I got a little distracted in the middle of that. <laughs> so you went, into, you went into my question a little bit. I want to know what you have to do to mentally prepare to and to play Martina on center court in a finals. Yeah, I didn't do a very good job. I, I was totally overwhelmed with the whole situation. And, you know, I was playing really well. It was probably, you know, I peaked really young. Like when I was like 18 or 19, I got to do well at like the U.S. Open and French Open. And and then kind of as my career was kind of getting down, I, I you know, I had a couple other good years. But it's, you know, it's it's a grind. And it's hard to string matches together, but you know, I, I love playing on grass. Is that the question? What tournament? I like to play on grass. Yeah. That was it. I like to play on grass. You can help me out with that, Michael. Yeah, I love playing <laughs> Wimbledon. Wimbledon's is the best. Um, so uh, yeah, I just was overwhelmed with the whole thing. You know, just you know, you get interviewed before you go out on the court. You know, I was, you have to go in this little anti-room, I don't know if that's what you call it, but this little room where you wait, and uh, Boris Becker came by, and he's like, oh, you're, you'll do fine. I'm like, yeah, right, you know, he's like, you look really scared. I was like, no, I kind of am, you know, and I had a curtsy and do all this stuff, and, and she was just so much better than me, and it was, you know, it wasn't a fair fight, but, you know, I'm grateful for the that I got to play her, but yeah, there was some moments in there where I just kind of wanted to go kind of sneak off the court and walk off the court and just go home. But um, anyway, it was, yeah, you don't want to play Martina in anything like Tiddly or Checker. She'll kick your butt and just about anything. Well, thank you, Gretchen, for joining us tonight. We appreciate you coming on. I want to thank everyone. Oh, you guys were awesome. Too. Yeah, it was good. Thank you. Always nice to talk to a fellow Pittsburgher. Well, I'd like, I'd love to turn. Yeah, I'd love to turn this uh, conversation around and ask you guys some of those questions. But we can do, a, <laughs> we can do another show and, and do that. But you don't want to hear what some of the stuff Kevin has to say. Ooh. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. I'd like to talk about your sports. I bet you guys got some great stories. <laughs> right. A few. I'm going to walk you guys up. I'm going to try to flip this around.